You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. To another episode of Let's Talk Creation uh, with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And we're here to chat about creation and creation research. And this week we're going to get going on a, uh, a new installment in our first installment in our uh, series of uh, great discoveries in creation research. But Paul, it's Christmas. <laughs> Christmas Very nearly. Is- Christmas is Friday, right? So, <laughs> tell me, tell me something. In the UK, in the US here, we as as you probably know, we're obnoxiously commercial about Christmas. We we have you know stores start putting out Christmas decorations in in September now. Some places August, um, and of course you have to buy lots of presents for everyone. Is it similar in the UK, or are you a little more t- tame about it? Oh no, it's it's very commercial, and oh. you know, as as soon as Halloween is over, all the Christmas stuff goes up in the shops. Yeah, so right. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty much the same. Yeah, but it's interesting because here, even as soon as Christmas is over, then the Valentine Day candy goes out for February. So it's oh, it's right. not it's it's not just a problem of Christmas oozing out of its month. <laughs> Every holiday tends to be far too early and far too soon in its in its uh celebration at least in the stores you i hope you got your christmas shopping done i've been uh, working on mine um with our new studio that we talked about last time i've got all yes. sorts of new cool things that that we could buy for it so uh, christmas presents for my wife have been pretty easy this year i think <laughs> yeah that's very good. Yeah, I, I I have this bad habit of leaving my Christmas shopping until the very last minute. But huh. actually, actually, I'm a, I'm a little bit ahead of the curve this year, so I'm okay. <laughs> oh, good, yeah. good, good, good. Well, it's Friday, so I hope you get busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this week we have a special guest with us, um, and as I said, this is our inaugural episode of Great Discoveries and Creation Research. We are highlighting here things that. The average person probably hasn't heard about or maybe have I've only heard about briefly. And this is a pretty exciting guest and a pretty exciting topic, I think. Um, so our guest is uh, Dr. Art Chadwick. Uh, Dr. Chadwick is a professor at Southwestern Adventist University. And Art has been digging dinosaurs for more than 20 years and it's one of the most extraordinary um ongoing research projects in in the world of creation research and so we are really privileged to have him here with us thanks for joining us dr chadwick Uh, it's a pleasure to be here all right so let's just get started every summer you i guess you pile up a bunch of uh, pack up a bunch of vans and move for a month to uh rural what is it wyoming eastern wyoming there where your dig is and how did that get started how how did this work <laughs> where did you how did you get involved 
Well, first place, it's a long ways from rural. <laughs> it's <beyond> Is it? Rural. <laughs> <laughs> you leave rural, be rural behind 20 miles away. <laughs> but um, I began a, a interest in this project back in the 1990s, middle 1990s, um, when I got a call from my friend, uh, John Morris at Institute for Creation Research. And he told me about a project out in Wyoming that was in need of a, need of a leader. And so I uh, took a listen and he told me about this ranch out there where there were a bunch of dinosaur bones. And I wasn't particularly interested at that point because I was working down in Peru on fossil whales with Dr. Brand. And so I called my friend, Lee Spencer, Dr. Spencer is a vertebrate paleontologist or was. And um, so I talked him into going out and looking at the project. And he did that in uh, 1996, along with Kurt Weiss from, I think he was at, um, at Bryan College at the time. And then later in that summer, I was out traveling with Dr. Spencer and he and I finished a tour that we were doing a geology tour. And he said, why don't you come take a look at this project in Wyoming? So I drove back out there and, and again, I was just curiosity as far as I was concerned, but the rancher was a very wise man, took me in his pickup truck up onto the top of a ridge. And uh, he said, okay, hop out here. We'll look around. And I opened the door and I couldn't get out of the truck because there were bones all over the ground. So I, I without stepping on dinosaur bones, which I wasn't about to do. Uh, so I very gingerly picked my way out and I looked around in, at this field of bones at the surface. And I was stunned to think that all this data was being lost to science because it's washing away every year. So uh, that incentivized me to begin to think about the project and look into ways I might be able to save some of this data for science. So that was my initial uh, impetus to take a look at the project. Hmm. So the next year in 1997, Dr. Spencer and I went out there and looked around some more and then repeated that in 1998. 1999, we finally got a class together and went out there and began to do some serious digging. And the project has, has grown ever since. Wow. Hmm. So is it is it common? <laughs> I'm not a paleontologist. Is it common to find a place where you literally cannot step without stepping on a bone? Is that frequent? No, it's not unknown, but it's not common. And this particular site uh, has to be one of the largest such sites in the world. So it's it's a huge reservoir of information about dinosaurs. Hmm. Wow. So how many bones are you finding? Because you've been excavating there now every year ever since then. Um, on average, how many bones are you you're digging up each year, do you think? I I would say between 1,500 and 2,000. Wow. Our, our collection is well over 30,000 bones at this point. So wait, <laughs> wait a minute. Let me, let me do some math here. You're out there. Are you out there about a month every time you go? Is that the yes. usual plan? Okay, so you're out there maybe 30 days, maybe 25 days of digging. 
and you're coming up with 1,500 bones. That's dozens of bones every day. Literally, I, I'm, I'm imagining everybody who goes on this dig, you have volunteers, right? Everybody who goes is going to find a dinosaur bone, pretty much, guaranteed. Is that right? Well, we, we set them down over a meter square and say dig, and uh, they, they take that meter down, they're going to find 30 bones. So that's, <sighs> that's typical wow. of the of the density of bones we find in the quarry areas. Wow, so 30 bones per square meter. Something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And and what happens uh, to, to the bones? Once you've excavated them, um, you know, where, where do the bones go? Well, we decided very early in our relationship with the ranch, uh, there is a organization called the Hanson Research Station, and they... Uh, have authority over what goes on out there. They're a, they're a board that a nonprofit board that is responsible for making those decisions. It includes some of the family members and some scientists and others. And uh, so they they are ultimately responsible for what happens, what the disposition of the bones are. At this point, Southwestern Adventist University has been the official repository, and we have just built about four years ago. We built a a nice facility to house the bones and allow them to be displayed so that one of the aims of Mr. Hansen originally was that these bones be used for science. So uh, we have uh, put them in the museum. We also put them online in um, what is widely regarded as the best online dinosaur uh, museum repository in the world. So wow. We've gotten real real we've had real success all the way around wow hmm. i give god the praise because uh, i mean i'm just a molecular biologist yeah. <laughs> so what goodness so what makes your work there so unique i mean i've heard i've heard people tell me about this before about the way you're mapping the quarry and so forth. Can you give us a little rundown on on what's so sort of cutting edge in terms of dinosaur excavation? What what are you doing out there? Sure. When when we first got there, there was another paleontologist that had been looking at the site, and he um, had asked the owner of the ranch for a ninety nine year lease on this particular section of the ranch, so that he could build a permanent field station there. And the ranch owner had noticed that he was bringing out kids from the local town and teaching them about evolution using these bones. And uh, he wasn't, the rancher was not interested in having his bones used to promote evolution. So he told the guy, if, if you'll uh, teach them about creation as well as evolution, then uh, I'll give you the lease. And the guy just said, no way, and, and left in disgust. And he said, shouting over his shoulder, this is the last day science will be done on the Hanson Ranch. So that was kind of my, that was, those were my marching orders right from the beginning. Yeah, right. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we decided that we had to do more than just regular excavation. We had to, we had to improve the science. So we set out very early to discover new ways of of excavating and new ways of mapping the bones in the quarry. And we came up with using uh, high resolution GPS. So 
Uh, that was in the year 2000. So wow. we have been uh, mapping every bone that we have taken out of the ground since that time using high resolution GPS. So we can reconstruct the, the relationship of bones in the quarries in the computer so that we can see and study them. And I'm doing that right now, by the way, uh, working on another paper. And I'm doing all my research online because I have that data available. So it's it's been a real boon to us. Uh, we wrote the seminal paper on how to use this technology in, in paleontology. Interestingly, uh, nobody else seems to have fallen in line, probably because they don't want to follow the lead of creationists. <laughs> Isn't it weird? <laughs> it can't be good because creationists came up with it. So, so when you talk about GPS, is this like... You know, my phone has a GPS and I can use it for directions uh, driving. Uh, you're talking about high-res stuff. What, what does that entail? Well, it, it involves a fixed base that's on a position that's very accurately determined. So we know it within a, a half a centimeter. And so the base knows where it is and it goes up and talks to the satellites and gets a reading for its position. And uh, since it knows where it is, it can calculate an error on that particular reading. So it does that. And then it transmits that over the air to the other end where there's another device just like that, that is portable. And the portable device we use to actually take points on the bones. So every point that we take is corrected from the base data. So we get accuracies of uh, half a centimeter or less. <laughs> Because wow. my phone is always thinking I'm going down the wrong road. So <laughs> this is much more precise than my phone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the GPS part of it isn't that different. It's a little it's a little more sophisticated, but it's very similar. But yeah. the, the correction aspect of it is similar. Yeah, the correction. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. how many points do you typically take on a on a bone? We try to outline the bone. So if it's a small bone, we just take three points. If it's uh, a femur, we may take 15. 20 points. Mm -hmm. It's about okay. a, second, a second for each. Wow. And what happens to all of this data then, Art? What, what are you actually doing with all of these GPS coordinates that you're collecting? Those go directly into the computer. We download them every night from the GPS units. So there's no possibility of human error, at least in terms of the, the transfer of the data. Uh, then we uh, take a photograph of the bone. And in the computer, when we get back, we take those points that we took on the bone and transfix them onto the picture of the bone uh, with, the, with the surroundings removed. And then we use that, uh, then, then we fix that bone at that particular position. And then that becomes a permanent registration of that bone with the other bones. Hmm. So it's complicated, but it works very well. And it allows us to do things like look at all the femurs in a particular quarry or look at all the ribs or whatever. Uh, there's all kinds of manipulations you can do on this data uh, post-processing. Hmm. Hmm. And, and the aim, as I understand it, is to try to understand in three dimensions what the bone bed looked like in the ground. Is, is that right? Is, Absolutely. Is that yeah. Yes. And uh, we have, we're, we, of course, we're doing taphonomy, which is the study of everything that happens to an organism from the time it's alive until it's excavated. So in order to reconstruct that, 
uh, history, we need as much data as we can from the relationship of the bones. Mm. Been very useful. Uh, mm. We discovered, for example, that uh, our quarry bones were, were in a graded bed with big bones at the bottom and little bones at the top. Well, as soon as we reported that in the literature, other people started commenting on it, and now it's very widespread. And we know that there are many quarries in these uh, upper Cretaceous, uh, in the Cretaceous, there are many uh, dinosaur quarries where the bones are graded. Mm. And that was just a happenstance discovery because we had this high resolution data. So when you say graded, um, j just for those who perhaps are uninitiated here, what, what you're talking about is the size of the bones decreases as you go up through the bed. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the biggest normal, bones are at the bottom and right. smallest at the top? Normally the bed has big things at the bottom, little things at the top. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're finding. I apologize. No, that's, that's good. Um, so what does that tell you about how the bone bed formed? What's, what's the significance of the fact that it's a graded bed? Because that seems to, to be a really significant discovery. Yes, and what that tells us is these bones didn't accumulate. Well, let me back up. Uh, the, the traditional explanation for bone beds is that animals are crossing the river in a flood stage and some of them drowned and were carried downstream. This is based on the, um, on the wildebeest in Africa and other things like that. Uh, and then they accumulated at a bend in the river where the carcasses were stranded. And then over time they accumulated and became a bone bed. And that's the standard explanation that's been used traditionally for all these, all these uh, piles of bones. And what this says is no, that, that can't be the case. These had to be catastrophically in place. So mm -hmm. it was a single event that transported these disarticulated bones from where they were to their current resting position. And as taphonomists, that's very important to us. Mm, sure. So also, you, you just mentioned that the bones are disarticulated. So you, you're, not, you're not finding whole dinosaur carcasses with all the bones in place. The, the, the bones are all separated from one another. Is that, is that right? In, in the main quarry, the, the main quarry covers an area of about, oh, half a square kilometer, I guess. In that area, the bones are all disarticulated and separated, so we don't find any relational uh, bones. They're all they're all dispersed. Mm. In uh, other outlying quarries, though, we have found uh, bones that are still at least associated. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a developing story. I'm working on a paper on that right now. So right. can I back up a second here because. Mm. I'm still digesting this whole <laughs> GPS quarry thing. So you take <laughs> pictures of the bones, right? And you have all these GPS points. And you talked about that's now fixed, whatever, uh, however you want to describe that. And, and can, you, can you make like a picture of the quarry with just the bones? Is that... Oh, he's going to get one. <laughs> <laughs> this is one I just printed out for. for the oh, very good. Huh. huh. That that big thing there is a triceratops skull, is seven feet long. So, wow, <laughs> give you an idea. Of it. Wow. Yes, we can. So, so the answer is yes. Now I've seen those kinds of things before, and it had been I think drawings, right? People would would paleontologists in the past would 
would make a lot of measurements and sort of keep track on paper and then draw out skeleton. And that's all static. You can't do anything with it. Mm. Um, by the way, these these diagrams are all available on our website. You can you can download them yourself. You can look at the data. You can study the data. We're we're very anxious for other people to take advantage of what we have online. Yeah, but it's it's nobody else. As I said, nobody else has anything like it. Mm. Now, all all of these bones uh, in the bone bed. Um, what dinosaur or dinosaurs did they belong to? And you know, are, are they only dinosaurs, or do you find other other things preserved in the bone bed too? Yeah, that's a great question. The main quarry, the one that I said was about a half meter square, half a kilometer square. Uh, that quarry is almost entirely about ninety percent. Uh, Edmontosaurus, the, the duck-billed dinosaur. We also find some Triceratops in there, lesser amounts, and um, we find teeth of many other dinosaurs in there as well. The outline quarries, the ones that we're concentrating more intently on now, contain a lot of other dinosaurs. Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus rex, uh, Notosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus, uh, uh, Tyrannus, Dromaeosaurus, Raptors, uh, Trudon, which is a very small chicken-sized dinosaur, and uh, Thessalosaurus, which is a sheep-sized dinosaur. So we find a lot of other dinosaurs represented there. Uh, we also find in amongst the bones not so much in the main quarry area, but in these outlying quarries, we find lots of remains of turtles, crocodiles, alligators, um, some lizards, um, some clams and snails, and let's see what else, uh, some birds and some mammals. Hmm. Well, my nephew's going to want to know, uh, what have you learned about T-Rex from your fossils? <laughs> He's five or six. Uh, he's young. They have amazing teeth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but those have taught us something also because these dinosaurs shed their teeth when they're yeah. eating. They'll, they'll bite into a bone and break a tooth off. It's no big deal because they just grow a new one. Grow a new one. But, huh. but they leave these teeth behind. And we find these shed teeth all through mm -hmm. our deposit, which means that these dinosaurs, after they died, were scavenged by, by theropods, meat-eating dinosaurs. Wow. And in the process, they left their calling cards behind, which are the, yeah. so we find some very large uh, Tyrannosaurus teeth and, na and Nanotyrannus teeth and Dromaeosaur teeth and Trudon teeth. Those are all um, theropods. Mm, wow. Do you find them actually stuck in the bone sometimes? Well, on the ranch, one um, that was, this was from that paleontologist that was there before us. He found one that was stuck in the bone of a uh, triceratops. Wow. But we, do, we do find lots of bones that are tooth scarred, which means there was something biting them. And uh, also we tend to find pieces of rib that are about the width of the mouth of a T-Rex. We suspect that like lions, if you've ever seen in Africa how the lions eat 
Sometimes they'll be entirely inside the carcass of a wildebeest or a zebra, uh, eating out the insides. They don't eat the, what we would call the meat. They eat the innards, the stomach and the and the um, liver and the kidneys and all that and the heart. That's what they go for. And I suspect it was the same with these theropods that they were eating through the rib cage, since uh, dinosaurs have full rib cages, unlike wildebeest. They go all the way along. They would have had to bite through those ribs to get in. And that seems to be what has punished the, the ribs in the process of uh, taphonomics. Uh, wow. Wow. So given the uh, kinds of animals that are preserved in the bone bed, can you say something about the sort of environment that you know we're dealing with here? What, what's been preserved? Well, we... We have studied the pollen of the associated with bones, and we have a pretty good idea of what kind of plants were around there, typical of Cretaceous plants. Uh, we know that there are marine kinds of organisms associated with them. I forgot the fish and stingrays and uh, sharks that we find associated with them as well. So, most of these are pretty small, like you might find in a in a uh, marshy area near shore. And so we think probably these animals stranded on a shoreline somewhere hmm. and were scavenged by uh, still predatory dinosaurs that were still alive. And they sat there for long enough to rot and decay enough to, to disaggregate. Hmm. And then the whole mass was transported out and buried in a single event. That's kind of wow. the scenario that we come up with from the data. Mm. Right. Mm. Huh. And what about the condition of the bones? Um, you, you've mentioned that you find kind of tooth damage on some of the bones that sort of points to scavenging. Um, are, are, the, are the bones generally well preserved apart from that? Yeah, very well preserved. In fact, it, it looks very obvious to us that they were never weathered. So they weren't sitting around long enough for weathering to take place, which would have been in a year's time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, considerably less than a year that these bones were, were uh, exposed. Hmm. So those are all clues that we get from our taphonomic analysis. Yeah, yeah. So we've got this sort of older idea about bone beds uh, that you mentioned earlier that you've got these migratory herds of dinosaurs maybe that are crossing a major river system, something like that. And, you know, every year some of the dinosaurs get drowned and washed downstream. Maybe they accumulate somewhere, you know, on a sand bank or a sandbar. And over time you build up this extensive bed of bones. But what you're saying is that that model is not correct, that um, you, you've kind of come up with a very different scenario. Yes, uh, in our case, that model is not correct. I can't mm. really apply that to everybody else's cases, but it seems to be sure. a general phenomenon. Mm. Huh. Yeah. So, what killed the dinosaurs in, in in the first place? Do you think? You know, if you've got this, uh, I mean, these, these dinosaurs, these particular dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean, pre presumably, um, you know, you're, you're talking about what hundreds, thousands of individuals. Yes. Thousands. Thousands. Wow. Okay. There, there are a couple of ways 
they could have ended up this way. Drowning is one possibility. Um, they, they could have been suspended in water too deep to touch bottom and just run out of run out of uh, strength. Or uh, they could have been killed by breathing volcanic ash or something like that. It's very difficult to come to bring that one to the wire. It's just there, there are lots of speculations. And uh, for example, our whales down in Peru, we finally concluded that they were killed because uh, of the volcanic ash arising from the from the uplift of the Andes, hmm. and uh, that, that probably suffocated them. That's why we find thousands of whales down there. But whether that would be the case here or not, I don't know. Hmm. So the dinosaurs are already dead at the time that they're then transported into place and buried, you know, where you find them today. So we have the these massive numbers of dinosaurs that are deceased. And then you're saying they lay they lay around for a while, they, they enough to for the carcasses to rot um, and be scavenged and perhaps trampled on by, you know, uh, scavenging dinosaurs. And then something picks picks up that sort of mass of decaying carcasses. And what happens to it then? Well, I, I think the best guess is that they were transported as a debris flow. Yeah, into deeper water. They must have been on a shoreline and transported into deeper water by a catastrophic release of, of energy from an earthquake or something like that. Uh, or maybe a possibly a tsunami, something shook, shook that area enough to resuspend the sediment. And then the bones uh, sorted as they traveled so that the big bones came to rest at the bottom and the smaller bones on up the column. It'd have to be some earthquake or tsunami to move thousands of dinosaur bones. <laughs> you mentioned, as I think you mentioned, Edmontosaurus. That's your most common. Is that right? Yes, Edmontosaurus is in the main quarries is ninety-five or more percent. Wow. So what is what is an Edmontosaurus for for all the parents out there who don't read dinosaur books? <laughs> It's a, it's a 30 to 40 foot long behemoth of an animal. I mean, oh. it's gigantic. It has wow. a tail, tail like a cedar tree. Its strength is in its hips. It walks <laughs> on its uh, rear legs and it eats grass like an ox. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a behemoth, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is large. So this is a, this is a plant eating. Yes dinosaur that, right. that's good for flotation because uh herbivores tend to generate a lot of gas in the in the digestive process so if you if you tried to if it died out in the water it would float and would be a great uh sailing ship when the wind blew and could be pushed <laughs> up onto the shoreline where it could be stranded so how big is the femur the, the, the upper leg bone of one of these things, you know, how, how big are these bones? Well, we could go into the museum and look, but it's uh, <laughs> that's the largest bone in the body. I think the biggest one we have is 54 inches or uh, a meter and a half. Wow. So that's yeah. that's like, uh, yeah, that's four foot eight inches. So th that's got to be heavy. Yeah, they, well, right now they have been, uh, modified by the addition of iron and loss of loss of protein from the bones, 
iron and mang mang manganese have been picked up from the surrounding soil. So they're, they're very beautiful mahogany color. And they, a, a big femur, I think the largest one we have probably weighs 250 pounds. So mm. it's, it's big. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> you just get a bunch of guys around and, and heave ho and move them off into the truck or uh, <laughs> do you have a special wagon for those kinds of things? I mean, that must be tons of bones. We have to cast them up. We, we put them in plaster jackets. Okay. Two, two people can carry it. Oh, good sakes. <laughs> oh, my back hurts just thinking about it. <laughs> And th and then the smallest bones, I guess, are things like maybe toe bones and thing things like that. Is that right? So you, you get yeah, the very the very uh, smallest bones we find probably well, it's debatable, but anyway, uh, trudon teeth or pectinodon teeth are uh, less than a millimeter, up to a couple of millimeters in size, two or three millimeters. Wow! And wow! Yeah. We find a lot of those. How? Hmm. There's tiny. How do you, what do you sift the, the, the sediment or something? We do, but also people with, these are young people mostly working on it and they have good eyes. And oh yeah. They find them quite <laughs> often. They don't have bifocals yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And thinking about this kind of broader geological context uh, here, um, you, you talk about this particular bed that we find the bones in as being the product of a catastrophic debris flow. Um, what about the, the other sediments, uh, you know, above and below this deposit? Are, are there any clues from those that you can, you know, that shed light on how the bone bed formed or the circumstances in which it formed? Uh, unfortunately, the Lance Formation is one of the most perplexing sedimentological studies I've ever been involved in. It's, it's crazy. You can look at one side of a cliff and you see sandstone. You look at the other side and it's, it's mud. Hmm. Like, and uh, some of the clays are very pure. They're, you can chew them. And then some of the sand is, is uh, fairly coarse. It's got some volcanic material in it. Um, but it. But it's perplexing. It's been described as a fluvial deposit because mm. that's the easiest way to handle it. You just say it's fluvial and that explains why it's so erratic. But our, our studies all suggest that where we are, the lance is not fluvial. It's, it's um, probably uh, shallow marine or near shore or maybe offshore a little bit. Okay, so fluvial would mean Deposited by rivers. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. let me also add some clarity here. When you talk about the Lance Formation, and I go to say a cliff, and I look and I see ooh, pretty layers. Is that a formation? <laughs> is that what I'm seeing there? Well, formation has a very specific definition. It has okay. to has to have a certain. Uh, lateral continuity and be a certain thickness. Um, oh, okay. But, but uh, the formation is defined by a geologist who has described it, published on it. Uh, the Lance Formation, interestingly, there's something called state line faults because the geologists from 
Wyoming studied the Lance Formation and called it the Lance Formation, and geologists from South Dakota studied the same formation there and called it the Elk Creek Formation. So the Lance Formation and the Elk Creek are, are coeval and, and probably continuous, but they're in different states, so they have different names. <laughs> That's now confusing. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned that... Um, the, 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 the sediments that you find in the Lance Formation, the sandstones or the mudstones, are not very continuous laterally. So you can look at one side of a cliff and it's one thing and at the other side it's something else. Presumably that makes it very hard to map and to work out exactly what the sequence is. Um, the bone beds, I, I guess they're reasonably extensive. Can they act as kind of marker beds so that you can work out where you are in the, in the sequence of rock layers? And are there other clues that help you to do that? Wow, you're right on, Paul. <laughs> that's, a, that's our best our best stratigraphic marker is the bone bed. Uh, we also have, uh, and this is very interesting, we have uh, these uh, seismites, which are beds that have been disturbed uh, very close in time to the deposition that are tectonically uh, demolished. The internal structure of the bed is just crenulated and, and does all kinds of amazing things. So we know that uh, deposition was rapid, but in, in any case, uh, more to your point, the seismites give us a moment in time. That's a timeline that mm -hmm. we can also use for mapping. So we've, we've been able to trace some of these seismites where we couldn't uh, do that otherwise. But it turns out there are a lot of seismites, a lot of sand beds um, that Kurt Weiss has been mapping uh, that are uh, spread through the lance. So it, it becomes enigmatic also. Mm -hmm. There is some stratigraphy you can trace, but it's very difficult to pick out. And mm -hmm. just to complicate things, the sand takes up carbonate, it becomes hardened. And so you can, you can see these, what look like nice, traceable beds and then you go up and look at them and there's sandstone that's been that's uh, post-depositionally been altered with carbonate so it's it looks like a bit looks like a depositional bit but it's not mm. those things just come and go <laughs> yeah it sounds a really complex area to work in and to try to sort of unravel exactly what's going on yeah yeah so it's no wonder it you, you've been working there productively for about 25 years. <laughs> there's a lot to do. Yeah, there's a lot to do. A lot to do. Yeah. So, so the seismite, I want to I explore that a little bit, just make sure I understand what you're saying here. So the interpretation is that you have these nicely layered rocks, right? And then an earthquake happens and messes up some of the layers is am i getting that right okay the the layers of sand have to be deposited fast because if they're deposited slowly the sand will settle out and lose its water internal water because the sand is deposited in water uh, if it's deposited rapidly the water gets trapped in the sediment and then gradually dewaters over a period of time so you have uh, those two possibilities if you have rapid deposition going on, then you can keep that water trapped in there long enough for some event in the external environment to disrupt it. 
and that's what's happening. So we know, we know factually that the, the sand is, is uh, disrupted very close in time to its deposition because underlying layers of sand that have been dewatered are not affected by these seismites. So it only okay. affects the layer at the top that's not dewatered. Okay. Okay. So that has a that has a recognizable. You can see it, right? So you, Absolutely. You go out and you go, oh yeah, that's a seismite. Okay. Now, you right. can see it too. It's it's like you see the layers coming along like this, and suddenly they go up like this, and it may they may even erupt out the top as a as a volcano, a sand volcano, if uh, if there's enough. So that's a that's like where the water is bubbling out of the yeah. sand. Is that it? Wow. Yeah, I think I would be able to recognize that if someone pointed it out to me. <laughs> These things are traceable for miles. Wow. Is that common? I mean, is that frequent? Let me let me clarify that. Is that frequently reported or is it frequent when you actually go look for it? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of sediments that don't show this, of course. Okay. But I was talking to a geologist from India who was telling me, oh yes, we see seismites every 13th bit or something like that, you know, wow. in, in the deposit he was studying. <laughs> so they are more common than I think people report them. I sure have seen them all the way through uh, in the Cretaceous and on up into the Cenozoic. Wow. How how close uh, art are you when you're you're in the Lance Formation from the um, Cretaceous Paleogene boundary, which is the famous boundary where the dinosaurs disappear from the record that's conventionally interpreted as their extinction, right? So you know the the famous impact with the meteorite in the Yucatan Peninsula. So are, are you quite close to that boundary in, in the Lance? In, in the Lance, <laughs> it's only, uh, you can find the boundary. The boundary occurs at the contact of the Lance with the uh, overlying Fort Union formation. Hmm. Uh, but it's only a few miles from where we are that you can find that boundary. The boundary, of course, is everywhere, supposedly. Hmm. But, uh, you can find that boundary not very far from us. Uh -huh. yeah. And do you see evidences there of the um impact i mean do, do you do you have a do you have a boundary layer that has the characteristics you'd expect well these these seismites are certainly indication of something big happening when you have a five meter thick layer of sand that's been completely disrupted you know not only is deposition going on fast but uh but there's some kind of a huge process going on that you wouldn't have been wanted to be around for Wow. Might be That's... good to watch it from outer space, but not the surface of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. Art, um, could could you try and sort of put this in some context for us? Um, you know, how does this fit into uh, overall sort of biblical Earth history? You know, do you do you think that this was happening during the flood that these dinosaurs are being buried during the flood event or you know how, how, do, how do you put all of that together yeah I, I think it's important for people to realize that geology and paleontology are about storytelling you have to be able to find a narrative that fits the data and makes sense and so a conventional geologist would look at it and he could describe it as 
dinosaurs crossing the river. And you don't really have to go very far to find uh, support for that. This is supposed to be a fluvial deposit. Uh, there are lots of dinosaurs there. That's, that's a, a reasonable explanation. But like so many stories, they, they can, you can tell more than one story about the same data. And so looking at it from a flood perspective and, and from the biblical perspective, I find that these dinosaurs probably died uh, fairly early, maybe maybe a month or more before they were buried. And, and uh, they were floating and bloating and they came up on the shoreline and got stranded there. And then they rotted there for a while and were scavenged. And then this whole mass of bones was was remobilized by some kind of tectonic, some kind of earthquake or something like that that shook up the sediment and resuspended it. And so all that material was just transported out into deeper water. And that's where the grading took place. So mm -hmm. that whole scenario uh, can easily fit within the year of the flood. It's not, obviously, it's, it can't take the whole year up. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, I can easily easily put that into that year, and I think some people like to put the end of the flood at the at the Cretaceous Paleocene boundary. I, I suspect there wasn't any end of the flood uh, on the as far as the geology was concerned. It just kept going on at diminished levels. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the way I would explain it. Hmm. That's very interesting. So obviously, there's there's no way we can we can prove conclusively that these dinosaurs perished during the flood, but it's, it's the kind of the scenario that you've outlined is, is the kind of thing that would be consistent with the flood is, right. is what you're saying. Really. And yeah. We publish, that's the, that's the scenario we actually publish. So mm -hmm. it basically is, is allowing that possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about that. You, you, you know, where have you been able to publish this research? And, you know, have, have you been able to publish it in conventional scientific journals? And, uh, you know, how, how difficult was that process? Well, I think in, in any case, when you're publishing, you depend on God to, to move things along, right? I don't uh, know exactly how we've done it. We've put it in top journals. We've got uh, two or three papers in the top paleontology journal. Uh, we have a, our major paper is in PLOS One, which is a, a really top-ranked journal. And uh, so we've gotten, I don't know, six or seven or eight papers uh, published so far that are, that are major papers that contribute to our understanding of what's going on here, which is our goal. We want our, our goal isn't to prove the flood. Our goal is to share uh, the fact that creationists can do good science and to contribute as scientists if we're just trying to take from the community and not give back that's that's not acceptable we have hmm. to give back to science and so we've been trying to do that at the highest register and, and so hmm. far god has blessed us we've had a uh, one of our pictures of the quarry was on the cover of this major paleontology journal hmm. so, uh, we've we've been doing okay hmm. okay art we're coming down to uh, near the end of our episode here, but I got to ask if I want to dig dinosaurs, <laughs> how, how do I get involved? What do I do? Okay. That's, that's a, that's the most important question. Right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there are a lot of people, 
lot of people out there that would like to come and spend time with us. Uh, there is an online site that you can go to to register. And uh, if you're a junior or more in high school, you can get college credit for taking a class. Um, we're there during the month of June, just so you can, for your planning, we're there for the whole month. We get there the first weekend, it's a full weekend in June, because that's the only time in the year when people can climb up Crazy Horse. So we send our, our crew off to climb Crazy Horse while we set up the quarries. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but we're there uh, for, the, for four weeks after that. And uh, anyone who would like to can participate. If you're if you're uh, not taking college credit and you're not a not a uh, of age, you have to have a parent along or a guardian. But uh, we welcome anyone who would like to. We have church groups that come out. And uh, last year we had a, a uh, I guess it was a Sunday school class at a Baptist church in Denver came down and spent. Three or four days with us a week, I think, and uh, they're planning to come back again. So uh, we we welcome anyone that's interested in the project who is willing to live uh, in a Christian way uh, and um, contribute to the project. Mm. And all the details about that are on dinosaur dinosaur s w a u. That's s sam w what wally. I don't know. <laughs> W-A-U uh, dot E-D-U. All right. We will definitely have that link in yeah. our show notes and yeah. in the comments. The website, you probably would want to know too. It's fossil dot yeah. S-W-A-U dot E-D-U. Yeah. Okay. Before, before we um, uh, leave this episode, there is one question I wanted to ask Art as well, which is what about the future? You know, have you, uh-huh. have you got future plans for the uh, dinosaur dig <clears> and other excavations are there other bone beds that you're you're kind of looking at and and maybe even other projects besides the the dinosaur project that you're working on at the moment yeah well i'll answer that first to last to first uh, <laughs> Leonard, Leonard brand and i are working on i think five different projects in utah right now oh wow that's <laughs> there's so many it's hard to keep track um yeah i could tell you about those they're they're fascinating as well uh then as far as the future is concerned, we are we are spreading out across the ranch and looking at these isolated sites that are not part of the big bone bed and finding them to be extremely interesting mm. and giving a lot of insights into what's going on out there. As far as the future is concerned, I am turning the reins over to my younger colleague, uh, Jared Wood, Dr. Wood, and he is taking over the logistics and the control of the project. Uh, he also runs our dinosaur museum here. So, and he's young, <laughs> he's in the <laughs> So, and he's very enthusiastic about this. We're also building a permanent structure on the ranch. We've gotten permission from the rancher and gotten the land and we're building a, a very nice facility there so that we have restrooms and kitchen and meeting rooms. Uh, they will go into the future. Mm. So we currently, will, we will be able to handle over 100 people. Last year, we had nearly 200 there, all, all told. Wow. But our, our stable population of 50 or 60 is normal. And mm. then people come and go from that. Mm. But yes, That's the future right. looks, looks good indeed. Yeah. That's great. 
we haven't even touched the, the, the potential that's there. Uh-huh. I, I know that this episode is going to be really popular with our listeners because, you know, everybody loves dinosaurs. So, that's you know, we're, we're very grateful for your time today, Art, to talk about this. Uh, it's, it's been fantastic. And I, I'd, we'd love to have you back uh, sometime to talk about yeah. the other projects that you're working on, because I know they're going to be equally fascinating. So thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Yeah. So can you can you show us, Paul, the book? Dr. Yes. Uh, Dr. Chadwick and Dr. Brand's book. Indeed. Um, yeah. This textbook, Faith, Reason and Earth History, uh, which is uh, co-authored by uh, Dr. Leonard Brand and Dr. Chadwick, uh, is available in hard copy like this. And uh, it's also available as an ebook. And we'll put the link in the show notes so that you know where to go to get the ebook. It's an absolutely fabulous book. Uh, it's in its third edition right yeah. now. And uh, I, I think this is one of the best textbooks that gives uh, an overview of the creationist model um, and it covers all kinds of topics philosophy of science uh, biology uh, sociobiology as well as geology and paleontology it's an absolutely first-class textbook and i highly recommend it all right all right well i think that just about wraps it up for us um let's see if you want to know more about the podcast let's check out uh, coresci.org slash podcast that's c-o-r-e-s-c-i dot o-r-g slash podcast if you'd like to contact us you can contact us through various social media platforms as well which you'll find links to there uh, or you can send us an email uh, podcast at coresci.org now this is the week of christmas paul and it's fundraising time. So as I've mentioned before in these episodes, uh, Core Academy is praying that the Lord will provide us with another $30,000 this month to end our year in completely in the black. Um, and if you uh, have enjoyed our podcast this year, we've done this is 20 some episodes already. Um, please visit us at uh Corsi.org slash donate and make a contribution to help uh, the health of the organization uh, so that we can continue providing this. And Paul, where can we learn about your organization, your ministry? Yes, uh, you can find Biblical Creation Trust at biblicalcreationtrust.org. And on the homepage, there's a, a donate button. And if you click on that, it'll take you to all of the options to give, uh, including uh, a PayPal account. And uh, we really do appreciate uh, your support because, uh, you know, we, we need to be in a position so that we can go into 2022, at, you know, uh, in a strong position. And without your help, we're, we're not able to do that. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, you've enjoyed the content we've produced, then we really do appreciate all the help that you can give it to us. All right. Well, I guess that's all for this time. Thank you, Dr. Chadwick, again for being with us. Yeah. And uh, thanks, Paul, for joining me for another great episode. And I guess I will see you in two weeks. Take care. See you, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.